Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle, and my guest today is Dr. Joshua Kaiser. Dr. Kaiser received his PhD from the University of Edinburgh and is the author of Becoming Simple and Wise, Moral Discernment and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Vision of Christian Ethics. Dr. Kaiser, thank you so much for joining me. Yes, thank you, Corey. Very nice to be here with you today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I will let you know off the bat, every time, so I've done this podcast for a while now, every time I interview a Bonhoeffer scholar, I ask this question at the end, so you can prepare for it, about um, uh, Desert Island, get a little game of Desert Island, if you could have one book by Bonhoeffer and about Bonhoeffer. And I want to say I have two or three different Bonhoeffer scholars suggest your book. Um, so I, you've been on the list for a long time. From, from, from I've been really looking forward to this because, uh, yeah, I, I I don't really have. It's usually like a the, the classics, the the uh, Betka biography, you know, something like something like that, where the Bonhoeffer scholars usually say that would be my secondary source. But I think yours would be kind of the most consensus from other Bonhoeffer scholars that I've gotten. That's not one of those classics. Wow. Well, it's very humbling, uh, Corey. I would have had no idea that that would have come up so many times. So um, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I'm, I'm very humbled to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, glad, glad, to, glad to give it a shout out and glad to, to read it and, and have you on here. Um, so you are another Scottish PhD, um, currently working on one, uh, pretty hard, but uh, lot, lots of fun, lots of fun. Um, so how did that how did that start for you? Um, how did you decide that you wanted to study academic theology and ethics? Um, where did Bonhoeffer come in the mix? How did you discover Bonhoeffer? Yeah, well, Bonhoeffer, you know, it was in college was the first time I knew anything about Bonhoeffer. I don't think, yeah, certainly didn't hear his name at all growing up. And it was through, I had a theology class in college. It was called Shared Praxis. And it was a four consecutive semester course all about theology and ministry and community building. So Bonhoeffer fit right into that. Mm -hmm. And at some point, probably the second semester, I remember our professor introduced us to Bonhoeffer's life and of course found that very intriguing and moving. And then we spent some time reading, we split the class in half, I think is how it worked. And half of us read discipleship or cost of discipleship as it's, it's often called. And the other half read life together. And I was on the discipleship team. And so I remember reading through that and then coming back and reporting some to the class about what we discovered. And uh, it's funny, I remember probably not understanding the book as deeply as maybe I would later and, and maybe not appreciating it quite as much. Um, but certainly what stuck with me with, with me was Bonhoeffer's life story. And, and that was kind of the beginning then. Um, and that carried through, you know, I had a sense theology in college for me, it was very eye-opening. I had, as I mentioned, a shared Praxis class and a few other classes that really, uh, really got me excited about theology and church history and ethics. I grew up a Christian, but probably never really, um, you know, thought about my faith as deeply and intellectually, historically. And so, so I was really excited in college to be kind of enter into that theological world. Um, and, you know, I think I, at some point there, I knew I wanted to go on for further study. I did go do a master's degree after college, but then decided to become a youth pastor for four years, which was, which was fun. Um, I used Bonhoeffer a lot with the youth and found them very receptive to his, again, his story and, and some of his, his theology and ethics. Um, so I did that for four years. And then of course, still had that sense that maybe there was 
a little bit more to do, a little more exploration. And so, uh, as you said, headed off to University of Edinburgh, we were living in Oregon, my wife and I. And so, um, so we had to have, have our Scottish adventure and I started in on the PhD at that point. Awesome. How did, uh, I guess, Bonhoeffer's vision of discernment, like obviously you came over to do a PhD. I'm always interested in hearing how people get passionate about specific subjects. So um, obviously you, you can basically study anything in theology with Bonhoeffer. Why, why or how did that come about your specific question? I went to a Quaker university, uh, George Fox University in Oregon. Mm-hmm. So discernment was sort of part of the, the ether there uh, amongst the Quakers. And so, yeah, I became interested in it to some extent then, but but really more so as I did my pastoral work for the four years. So I was a pastor at uh, a Quaker church. Uh, it's always a bit confusing. These are the programmed Quakers in the United States that have pastors as opposed to the, the unprogrammed Quakers. Um, over here in the UK, when I try to explain this, it's sort of, you know, makes no sense to, uh, to most people because programmed Quakers are a bit of an anomaly here. But um, so when I was a youth pastor, um, I mean, we were talking about discernment all the time with the youth and of course going to monthly meeting and practicing this consensus decision-making. And um, I just found it very powerful when it was, when it was done well, there's a sense of, of community, the sense of um, being able to avoid conflict sometimes by just bringing people along and listening closely together. And so I was really intrigued by that. And, you know, what use can we make of this for just everyday life and um, for peace building and various things. So that was in my mind as I was uh, heading off for the PhD. And Bonhoeffer, you know, as I sort of alluded to, he made an impression on me, his life story in college. And I think he stuck with me as well. Um, but to be really honest, Corey, you know, I didn't quite know what I was going to do when I came uh, to Edinburgh and sort of started in on the program. And um, I think you get to that point where you just have to make a decision, right? You can't go on indefinitely sort of <laughs> not knowing what you're doing. And so I thought, okay. Um, I'd read, you know, some other theologians and thought, oh, maybe something on Karl Barth or someone else. But I thought, okay, Bonhoeffer, let's let's stick with Bonhoeffer. And uh, and discernment was still important to me. And I thought maybe I could bring those two together. And I wasn't quite sure it would work initially, but um, I was able to find enough and get some momentum. And uh, and and that's where I headed down that path of Bonhoeffer and discernment. That's great. <clears throat> What sort of things did, what sort of uh, problems did you run into when you're looking at Bonhoeffer's understanding of discernment? It seems uh, pretty broad, I guess, um, and almost, uh, in my experience, uh, like bipolar, uh, don't ever look at yourself, uh, <laughs> you know, but then there, how, how is that possible? Like, there seems to be some sort of uh, difficulties in, in interpreting his discernment. Um, so what sort of problems did you run into? Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I would agree with some of that. Um, I think the first thing to say, there wasn't a lot written about Bonhoeffer and discernment. Mm-hmm. Um, and f- from secondary sources, but also from Bonhoeffer himself, it's not as though he sort of, uh, you know, has an extended treatise on, you know, moral discernment in, in every detail. Um, I, you know, you sort of had to pick out uh, bits from here and there. My, my supervisor, PhD supervisor at one point said, said, Josh, I think you're a, you're a hunter and gatherer. As, as a researcher, in other words, you know, you sort of like to go out and pull from over here and over there and bring things together and, and try to come up with a, an interpretation of something. And I thought, yeah, that, that sounded like me. I think that's right. Um, but as you begin to read Bonhoeffer, I, I think maybe others have had this experience there. I found there are really these two uh, emphases that he had, as, as you just said, Corey. So one of them 
you read portions of Bonhoeffer and you get this really clear sense that as a Christian, your task is to walk this path of simple obedience to God's will. Um, you know, it's this, this idea that you, you simply listen for God's commandment and you obey, you act on it. Um, you don't need any real rational moral discernment. In fact, Bonhoeffer would say sometimes that, that gets in your way, that distracts you uh, from simply you know, hearing God's command and doing it. And one, one way he, he kind of illustrates this, he talks about Genesis 3, right? The famous story of the fall of humanity uh, with Adam and Eve and the serpent. And he, he makes kind of a big deal about this. You know, the serpent says or asks Eve, did God really say you can't eat of the tree? Um, it seems like this uh, innocuous kind of question, but uh, Bonhoeffer says it's very, very cunning. It's very subtle. It's very seductive. And it's interesting, you know, the serpent doesn't say, don't listen to God or, or God's completely irrelevant, but it's just this question, did God really say this? It's as though he's, he's saying to Eve, um, you know, did God really mean what it sounded like God meant? Are you sure God didn't mean something slightly different than God said? You know, maybe Eve, you should take a minute to kind of work it through your own mind and, and you know, apply some ethical principles and try to figure this out for yourself. Um, and, uh, and that's what Bonhoeffer was really critiquing uh, at various times in his writings that this kind of presumed knowledge of good and evil uh, that I have in my own mind. And I, I try to use that to come up with my own ethical decisions. That's not what I should be doing as a Christian. That's, that's this temptation from the serpent. Uh, and what I need to do as a Christian is simply to, to hear God's word and, and follow it in obedience. That's, that's a path of discipleship. Um, and so, so that's, that's one of these, these emphases, but then, of course, there are all these other passages where Bonhoeffer uh, very readily talks about using the best of human ability, uh, using our, our reason and, and our knowledge of ethical principles and, and everything else to come up with, um, you know, to discern what's happening in a situation and to find a way forward. And so really, uh, and, and even to the point where in discipleship, which everyone would probably say this is one of the prime locations to talk about uh, where he talks about simple obedience and simplicity, following God's commandment. But even there, 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 there are bits where he, he allows for some kind of moral reflection. I mean, he's not saying this is sort of a, um, a simplistic path of simple obedience where you're completely ignoring everything else. So that, that was what I found. And I thought, well, this is a, a conundrum then. So mm -hmm. it seems like you read one section of Bonhoeffer in isolation. It seems like he's only talking about this simple, single-minded approach and, and everything else, every, any kind of rational reflections out the window. But in other occasions, it seems like, no, no, the rational reflection is quite appropriate for Christians. So I thought, okay, how do these two fit together? Because I started getting hints as well as I read through Bonhoeffer that um, they did fit together somehow. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's what I, I sort of started trying to explore and, and figure out how he was envisioning these two things fitting alongside each other. Yeah. How are those, uh, that would be, that'd be wisdom and simplicity, right? That's how kind of how you define them in, in the book. Right. Um, right. how do, uh, how does wisdom and simplicity fit together? Um, what, what's Bonhoeffer's method there? Yeah. Yeah. So the wisdom and simplicity, those are the two other terms he sometimes uses. Um, there's that verse in, in Matthew 10, where Jesus is sending out the the 12, and he says, um, translated different ways, but to be as, uh, as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And again, those words can be translated different ways, but Bonhoeffer picks up on this and, and talks a bit about this, 
simplicity, that's the simple obedience and, and wisdom, which is sort of the more rational, reflective, uh, moral deliberation. So what I saw in Bonhoeffer was that really Christology is at the heart of how he reconciles these two things. Um, and we could, we could think of it in two different ways. One is, you know, we just need to look at, at Jesus in the gospel stories. And Bonhoeffer would say, um, look, Jesus himself practices both of these things. So we read those stories and it's clear that Jesus, he's all about doing the will of the father, right? Uh, his, his single purpose is this way of simple obedience to carry out God's will in his life. And that, that seems to be pretty clear. And, you know, the Pharisees, Bonhoeffer will say, they're often trying to pull Jesus into these, these kinds of ethical discussions and debates where they want to parse through uh, moral principles and, you know, kind of go over their own knowledge of good and evil and try to work out, you know, what a, what a divine commandment might really mean. And, and Jesus often uh, will always, you know, wants to avoid this, wants to sort of operate on, on a different level than the Pharisees. And Bonhoeffer would say, look, that's, that's a simple obedience. You know, Jesus is not being tempted by this, uh, this temptation of the serpent, right, to use his own knowledge of good and evil. But then at the same time, we look at Jesus' uh, story, you know, healing on the Sabbath. I mean, the various times that happens. And it's as though Jesus, at the same time, he has this kind of freedom, this liberty to, to look at situations, to see people, to see what's happening, to make judgments, um, that at least from the Pharisees' perspective would seem to go against maybe a, a, a standard interpretation of, you know, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy. And so again, Bonhoeffer says, look, Jesus himself, he seems to have both of these. It's not that Jesus is um, sort of this completely unreflective, unthinking automaton who's just sort of going along, doing what God says. Uh, yes, simple obedience, but also some moral reflection. Um, that's part of it. And the other part I would mention, there's this deeper level for Bonhoeffer where, you know, Christologically speaking, or even ontologically speaking, we could say he talks about how Christ brings together both the divine and human, the reality of God and the reality of the world. Um, it all comes together in Christ. And, you know, you might say that's the kind of a standard, nice Orthodox Christology for Bonhoeffer. So that's great. But he really seems to hammer away at this and, and it's really important for him. You know, he looks at that uh, Colossians, right? I mean, everything um, created through Christ and toward Christ and everything having its existence only through Christ. And Bonhoeffer says that in, in this very real way, we can't know anything about God or anything about the world or, you know, anything about anything at all, except through Christ. Christ is this, this, this person who stands in the center. Christ is the mediator. So our, our whole perception of reality is, is funneled through Christ. Um, and so it's kind of a, a radical notion, actually. And it means then that because Christ is this, this ontological foundation of everything, these seemingly disparate realities, like something divine and something human, they find reconciliation in Christ. Or things like this simple-minded way of obedience and the more rational, reflective moral deliberation, perhaps those two find reconciliation in Christ. Um, so that's kind of his, his starting point. And I, and I guess the implication then for Bonhoeffer is, okay, if, if we want to see more clearly how those two fit together and actually practice this kind of discernment in our own lives, we've got to become more Christ-like. As he talks about, we've got to become conformed to the form of Christ. That's great. I wanted to ask you about that as well. 
Um, I'm currently working, so my PhD is on Bonhoeffer's understanding of uh, soteriology in general, so salvation, so there'll be participation, confirmation will definitely be in there. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, how would you describe Bonhoeffer's understanding of confirmation and participation in Christ? Yeah, thanks for that question, Corey. I mean, it is, it is important for him. Um, it's interesting, I think, uh, on the one hand, he kind of starts off and he says that we don't do it by simply imitating what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels and, and thereby forming ourselves after the form of Christ. It almost sounds more passive for Bonhoeffer, that he really wants to emphasize that it's Christ who's forming us. You know, not, I mean, because he sounds like a good Lutheran, right? <laughs> in a sense of, um, it's not sort of what we do that ultimately sort of matters, but uh, it does matter, but, but ultimately it's Christ kind of doing the work, God's grace and Christ forming us. Okay. Um, but of course, Bonhoeffer says there, there, are, there are things we, we can do and we should do. So he talks about Christ taking form different ways in the world and in some obvious ways. Um, one thing he says is Christ takes form as, as word, sacrament, and church community. And so, so one thing we can do is we can put ourselves in position to encounter Christ in these ways and to participate in Christ in these ways. So, you know, we can actively listen to, to a sermon. We can engage with scripture, the word, um, and, and thereby kind of allow Christ to take form within us. We can receive the Eucharist and right? sort of engage with, with reality and, and thereby participate in Christ. And, and we can worship together with other Christians. Um, and that too is a way to put ourselves in that, that kind of situation where Christ is working on us. Um, so those are some things we can do. And then one of the things I was really intrigued by with, with Bonhoeffer, which again, I hadn't seen a lot of people emphasize, was this idea of spiritual discipline, spiritual practices. Um, it was funny when I was a youth pastor, so I was at this Quaker church and uh, they were also into, into Ignatian spirituality, some, some of the people there. So it's this interesting combination, um, but, but not without similarities in some ways, those two things. So, so I, I, spiritual practice was also something that was important to me and I, I thought a lot about. So Bonhoeffer says, you know, in the, in the same way as, you know, uh, listening to a sermon and, and worshiping at church, we can, we can read scripture in a meditative way as a spiritual discipline. We can, we can pray, of course, pray the Psalms, uh, pray in other ways. We can uh, confess to each other. He, was, he thought mutual confession was, was important. They practiced that. Uh, he practiced that in his own life. Uh, fasting it might be another one that, that uh, played, played a part. He talks less about that. But again, the, these are ways that we can sort of put ourselves in position where Christ can start to work on us and form us after um, the image of Christ. And the spiritual disciplines are interesting too. You know, he says that um, they're, they're important for bridging this gap between hearing and doing. So one of the things about simple obedience, it's, it's the kind of a, approach we have where when we discern God's command, we, we act upon it. We don't sort of, you know, hold it in our minds and, and mull it over for a while and maybe bring in another ethical theory we read later and, and kind of think about it. No, we, we, we hear it and we do it, right? That, that's, that's the key. And so spiritual discipline, he, he thinks the problem sometimes is that we, we know what we should do, but we can't do it because the flesh is weak, so to speak, right? Our human frailty gets in the way. And so spiritual discipline can, can help with that. It can help overcome that gap between hearing and doing by sort of, you know, strengthening us and, uh, and helping us overcome the weakness of the flesh. So that's one thing. And, and he talks also about... Um, it's not all the time, certainly, but sometimes spiritual discipline can be this, this very immediate way that God can 
speak to us. And I mean, the, the part of Bonhoeffer's story that I always love is 1939 when he's, he's gone to the United States to, to really kind of escape Germany and the possibility of being, being called up uh, into the military and then having to face the decision to be a conscientious objector and what that would do to his, his family and friends. And, and so he, he, he gets out and he comes to America. And it, it's really clear from early on that he's conflicted about this decision you know, you read his journal entries and he's just, just not sure he's done the right thing. Um, he's, he feels like he should be back in Germany um, where, where his, his friends are, are still resisting and, and uh, the National Socialist government. And so he, he finally gets to one day in his journal where he's reading the, the daily readings and he reads uh, 2 Timothy 4.21, right? I'm sure, I'm sure no one knows what this verse is unless, uh, they, unless they know Bonhoeffer's story, right? The verse the verse says, of course, um, the first part of it come before the winter, mm-hmm. right? That's it. That's what Bonhoeffer writes in his journals, sort of Paul telling Timothy, you know, come before the winter. And you think, well, what does that mean? Come before the winter. Right. Well, well, Bonhoeffer, I mean, he takes this as God telling him quite directly that he needs to go back to Germany. It, it's, it's more complex. I mean, there are other factors, of course, but, but this was a very real experience he seemed to have where God is speaking through the scripture, through Bonhoeffer's sort of meditative practice of, of going over those scriptures that just happened to be the verse for the day. And, you know, it's summertime and Bonhoeffer's thinking, I've got to get back. I, you know, I can't, I can't wait. I can't be here a whole year as he initially planned. I've got to get back to Germany, which, which he ended up doing um, in fairly short order. And so anyway, that, that's another, another sort of interesting aspect of the, the spiritual disciplines. And it's, again, it's not that Bonhoeffer's going around saying that, um, you know, this happens sort of all the time and you just sure. sort of listen for, <laughs> open your Bible and it's just <laughs> apparent to you what you should do. But, um, but the spiritual disciplines were, were important to him. Um, I guess I might add a, add a final thing just about the, the meditative reflection, because I think one of the important things I, I realized as I went through my study was that um, it wasn't that Bonhoeffer was rejecting all forms of, of moral reflection, kind of as, as we've talked about, there, there's actually room for both of them. He was really rejecting this, this moral reflection that operated apart from God, um, sort of look to the, to the self and the self's own resources. And, um, and that's what he didn't, it's again, the, the temptation of the serpent. And he, did, he didn't want that. But what he finally came to, I think, was one of the ways to embrace a kind of moral reflection that's appropriate for the Christian is what he would call a kind of meditative reflection. And, you know, reading scripture became more and more important for him as, as he, he moved through his life, uh, 1930s, and then into the, the 1940s as well. And it was a sense, you know, he wrote at one point um, in a letter that I believe that the Bible alone is the answer to all of our questions. And of course, that's, that's a lot of people know that, uh, and that can be misinterpreted. It's like, what, what is Bonhoeffer saying here? I mean, he's not saying the Bible's like a reference manual or a, you know, a huge dictionary where it literally does hold the answer to any question we have about a definition or a, or a word, you know, you look it up and there it is. But there's a sense in which as we become immersed in scripture, as we meditate on scripture, we sort of become part of the story um, it sort of soaks over us. We uh, we're sort of trained in how to to hear God's voice, how to perceive situations through a, a Christological lens, a scriptural lens, and uh, and kind of in this radical way, we again, it's it's not that it's easy all the time, but we begin to kind of understand how God would have us respond. E- again, even though the Bible doesn't necessarily list out 
each particular, um, you know, moral action that's appropriate for each particular situation that we might face in our lives. So the meditative reflection, I thought, okay, this is, I think this is what Bonhoeffer uh, is getting at. This is one model of how a kind of moral reflection that's very based in Christology and scripture and God's word can sit alongside this way of simple obedience that he talked about. That's great. Um, I'm curious, I, I guess I, this was, this question is probably just coming from my own evangelical background, but when I think about participation in Christ, um, kind of growing up going to church, I, I would hear like, I guess, progressive sanctification is what we, we call it as a sort of like, um, as you live the Christian life, sort of, uh, being conformed to the image of Christ, you, you are, um, being conformed to Christ, you, you live a more holy, virtuous, moral life kind of on a scale that goes up. And, um, I am sure that no one, no one I know would say, yeah, it always goes up. It's sort of like <laughs> has right, its right. peaks and valleys. Sure. But always, always trending up. Um, and I'm wondering, I always think about that passage from Letters and Papers where Bonhoeffer says, I, I have always wanted to live a, a life of faith. And I used to think it was something like living a saintly life. Um, and now I, I realize that it's more partic daily participation in the sufferings and, and the um, everydayness of the world, basically, uh, he says. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, what is, what's Bonhoeffer's vision for Christian growth? Is it sort of just like having more, uh, spending more time in, uh, meditation <laughs> but then the other part of me is like well maybe that's where the uh the don't look at yourself part comes in like just keep keep trying um, how's that how does all of that work well he does he does have a, a sense i think of, of kind of an ongoing process a continuous process of of formation of it being conformed to, to christ's image right. so the you know this sort of this teleological um sense of moving forward right but um it's a bit different though, you know, if, when you read discipleship, for example, so we're kind of in the mid, mid, late thirties there, mid, mid thirties, 1930s. Um, it, it seems more about a kind of inner transformation. I mean, you, you can read that text as almost a rejection of the world. I, I think that's a little unfair. I'm not sure that's quite the whole of it there. Um, but, but probably a little more emphasis on, on you were saying sort of you know, personal interior, spiritual growth, mm -hmm. uh, becoming more Christ-like and, you know, and doing these things like praying and, and reading the scriptures, following the, the Sermon on the Mount closely. But, but it does change a bit. You know, you mentioned letters and papers from prison um, later, 1940s in his life, but even in, in his ethics too, kind of uh, when he's writing some of those manuscripts, it, it is true that it seems to be this process of sanctification involves um, this real engagement with the reality of the, of the world around. Um, and, and there's a sense in which, again, I don't think it has to be either or. I mean, as mm -hmm. one reads scripture, as one prays through the Psalms, I mean, I mean, these are, these are real kind of human expressions of the Psalms, for example. I mean, what you read in scripture, you find, again, this is all brought together in Christ. And he, he comes to this idea that, you know, maybe our primary task is to just to become fully human as Christ was fully human, to, to, to be good, to do acts of love and mercy. Um, I think he was so disappointed at the so many Christians in Germany who, who, who were sort of good Christians in name, but who um, either turned a blind eye to what was, was going on, who sort of just sort of knowingly uh, accepted what was going on and maybe sort of 
ignored the world and just sort of kept reading their Bible at home, you know, with their, with their coffee and didn't worry so much uh, about what else was happening. Um, he was so disappointed and disillusioned with that, that, you know, I mean, as you know, Corey, he, he started thinking it was some of these sort of uh, humanists, right. That were mm-hmm. acting more like Christians than the Christians were acting like Christians um, because they were the ones, the humanists, they were the ones sort of uh, fighting against these unjust social policies. They were the ones trying to enact change. They were the ones trying to um, do the real work of paving the way for God's kingdom to come, which, which certainly couldn't come in, in a situation where uh, people are being oppressed in, in society and people are forgetting to, um, you know, give their allegiance to God alone. So, yeah, I think, I think for Bonhoeffer, you know, this idea of sanctification, it did change a bit um, in his life, but, but in a way, you know, he does say about discipleship later on that he, he, he seems a little uncomfortable about um, some of the things he may have written there, but yet he doesn't want to throw it all out. I think he still sees that there's, there's a place for that, uh, that kind of thing, that kind of personal spiritual growth. But, but now um, that all plays out and that extends itself into, into the world uh, in a rare, very real way. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I guess when, when I read Bonhoeffer, especially when he's talking about simple obedience, it's almost like he's talking about it like he hears from God audibly, <laughs> um, like the come before winter thing. Like, oh, it's just so clear. I have to go back. Um, he, he writes a lot, especially in ethics about um, the hearing and the hearing and doing, um, never using your own knowledge of good and evil to discern your own path forward in life, but just returning back to the way it was in the garden where it was just hearing and doing. We only ever heard and did the will of God. Um, that is like, I don't know. It's just nothing like I've experienced personally in my, in my Christian walk, like the, the hearing and the doing uh, seems such more, uh, so much more um, nebulous. Uh, it's, it's so, uh, he makes it sound so concrete and it seems really abstract and uh, difficult in, in my own daily life. And, and in people uh, who I know that have read Bonhoeffer kind of express the same thing. It's like, he seems like, it's just like, yeah, I just opened my Bible or I pray, or I talk to uh, another person in community, and there it is, the will of God. Then I just go do it. And if I stop and do anything, then I'm, I might be throwing it off. Uh, does he make any room for, I guess, the, the difficulty in the sense of uh, how it is to do simple obedience? Because it seems like he's definitely advocating for it, but I find it really difficult. And I'm wondering if he has any, is there, does Bonhoeffer have any pointers for me, I guess? Yeah. Oh, that's good, Corey. I mean, I, I agree with you. Yeah. I think my experience in my own life too is, is that, yeah, you know, it's, it's not this easy, right? I mean, right. if only you just sort of at each moment, God sort of telling you, okay, do this, do this. Right. Yeah. Uh, great. Great. We'll just follow that, that path. Um, yeah. You know, something you just said, I mean, he, he does say at one point, um, certainly we, we can't sort of pretend that we can go back to some state, you know, in, in Eden as Adam and Eve were before the fall where you know, we, we sort of don't need ethics. We don't need any moral reflection. It's just this immediate relationship walking with God in the garden and God speaks and Adam and Eve follow and everything's great. Um, yeah, Bonhoeffer realizes that's, that's not the case. You know, I, I think there's no blueprint for discernment. This is one of the things I found in studying Bonhoeffer. You know, I kept wishing Bonhoeffer even more so would sort of, you know, just lay out all the details of, of how this all worked. And then I could sort of compare that with others or analyze it or critique it or whatever. But you know, it was difficult. There's not a, an entire blueprint that he has. Um, 
I guess I'll say a little more about that. The, the funny thing is though, what we were just talking about, you know, again to his historical context, I just think he probably thought on some occasions that some of this stuff should have been pretty easy. Like it should have been pretty easy to understand that, that God's command is not to oppress uh, fellow citizens, uh, to love your neighbor, love your enemy. And, and yet that seemingly simple commandment was, was apparently not so simple for people. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, I think he was so, so disappointed and disillusioned by, by that. Um, but yes, he knows it's not easy. I think, I think one thing he would say, the reason it's not so easy is there's always this contextual component in place, right? I mean, we, it's, uh, God's commandment is, is never, it, it's always historical and concrete. I think I mentioned that earlier. And so one of the, one of the little examples I use in the book, I think, was this idea of a simple commandment like, um, do not commit adultery. We might think, well, okay, that's, we know what that means, right? That's it's pretty simple to follow. We know what adultery is. We, we know we should avoid it. Great. Um, but there's a sense in which a commandment like that, it, it really, it really um, gains sort of power and immediacy when, you know, when I'm turning out the lights at night, going to bed, and there's my wife, you know, sleeping in the bed right next to me. Wow. Okay. That, that really puts that commandment into a, a concrete situation. So I know exactly what it means not to commit adultery now, uh, really specifically. Um, that's kind of what Bonhoeffer is getting at the, you know, it has to become concrete for us. But again, the difficulty is sometimes discerning the particular situation we're in, discerning all the factors, you know, that, that can be hard because it's not that God is always unambiguous. God doesn't micromanage us. And as we we're talking about, sort of mark our path at each, each point of the way. Um, and Bonhoeffer says, you know, God's will is often deeply hidden. I mean, he's, I think he is honest about that um, yeah. in, in more places than one. And I think it's, it's also why, again, he thinks that simple obedience, it's not simplistic. It's not naive. I think he says that because, because he knows, you know, we, it's not like we can forget that we have the power of reason or we have a conscience. He, he critiques those things at times, but they're part of our, our, our human nature, right? They're part of who we are. They're part of this world. And so we do have to find ways to make use of those to help us, um, again, sort of sort out what's happening right here and right now. Um, how can I apply my, my knowledge of God's word into this situation and, and sort of then, in a sense, hear God's voice within that and move forward? Um, and, and I do believe, you know, there are certainly plenty of people that have maybe more, uh, I don't know what you'd say, a charismatic experience of God, you know, a clear sort of voice uh, in their mind and, and a clear sense of just immediately what they should do. But, but yeah, we know it, that doesn't happen for everyone. That, that's fine. People have diff- God works with people different ways, I think. Um, and so for Bonhoeffer, yeah, he, he, w- he, would, he would not be unhappy with what you described earlier. He'd say, that's okay, Corey. That's okay. I know, I know it's hard in here. Let's, let's think about, you know, some spiritual practice and, and thinking about Christology and, and how we can, we can just go on this journey of confirmation to, to help us discern. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to, so I have two questions for you left. Uh, one, one is the fun one, but uh, so one more about uh, your book. You have uh, this section in there about the uh, penultimate and the ultimate. Um, I don't think we have covered the penultimate and the ultimate on the podcast. Um, so since um, this is the Bonhoeffer podcast and we're sort of going through his thought and I haven't had anyone 
uh, kind of detail that. I'm, I'm wondering if you could sort of lay out what the penultimate and the ultimate are. Um, where do we see that in Bonhoeffer's writings? And then more specifically towards your book, how do those concepts help us live uh, lives of moral and ethical discernment? Okay, yeah. Well, in his ethics, you know, he talk, he uses these, these terms ultimate and penultimate. Um, and they're kind of interesting, you know, some, I think some scholars have said these, it's a pretty creative contribution that Bonhoeffer has to sort of uh, phrase things in these, uh, with those terms. So let's see, to try to illustrate, okay, so the, the ultimate, that would be the reality of God, the penultimate, the reality of the world. Or we could think about it in terms of the ultimate sort of points to, to God's kingdom, whereas the penultimate is, is the time now before the coming of God's kingdom and all its glory and all, all its fullness. Um, the ultimate would be the realm of faith, the spiritual realm. The penultimate would be more of the, the sort of concrete, uh, temporal, everyday world that we live in now. Um, and then he also talks about, again, again, sounding like a good Lutheran, uh, the ultimate would be our, our being justified by Christ, but the penultimate is that time before our final justification. You know, we're, we're, we're still a sinner, even as we're, we're justified. Um, so that's kind of the distinction between the two. And, and I think Bonhoeffer thinks that it helps us think about relationships between uh, faith and life, between the spiritual and, and the temporal, between, as I just said, being justified, but, but still a sinner uh, simultaneously. And, and he thinks, you know, it, because it's not the case that we can just ignore one and embrace the other. So some people might try to embrace only the ultimate, God's kingdom, the spiritual realm, the realm of faith, and to see the world as completely sinful and, and sort of, um, you know, not something to engage in at all. And Bonhoeffer says, we, we can't do that. That's, that's no way forward. Christ didn't do that himself. Um, and on the other hand, we, we can't only look to the penultimate to, to think that God has no bearing on the world at all. And the spiritual realm is sort of beside the point. Um, again, both of these are sort of brought together in Christ. And, and he's really adamant that, that we, of course, live in the penultimate. We live in the, in the world here and now, this, this tangible world, the time before the final coming of, our, of, of God's kingdom, our final justification. And so what we're doing as humans right now is, is preparing the way for the ultimate to come in. Now, of course, he does say that obviously God is... Um, not reliant on any one thing that humans do in order to sort of break in with God's kingdom. I mean, God, God, when God's timing is right, that will happen. But Bonhoeffer thinks, thinks we can hinder the arrival of God's kingdom um, by, by things we fail to do now. So, you know, if, if people here are, are struggling to have their basic needs met in the world and um, how are they going to be receptive to God's word when it, when it breaks in, if, if they can barely feed themselves? So we, we need to be doing acts of, of love and mercy and fighting for justice in the world here and now um, in order to pave the way for the ultimate reality of God then to, to come in in all its fullness. And, you know, a good example, we could think about John the Baptist is the classic example of this. So John is, of course, representing the penultimate in Bonhoeffer's mind, the, th the thing, the person here that comes before Christ, who is the ultimate, the, the ultimate divine reality that's now appeared. Um, but it is interesting to think how certainly John the Baptist is preparing the way for, for Christ, but, but Christ is also present 
already concurrently with John the Baptist. He's right, he's right there, John, you know, being baptized, right? So, so there's a sense in which we live in the penultimate, but the ultimate is, is a part of that. Again, we, we have to deal with, with both of these things. Um, and I guess it's another way of thinking about discernment. It's another way to see how we've, we've got to engage deeply with the reality of the world before us. And part of that is to use our, our human abilities. Again, that's, that's the rational moral reflection that, that of course we have to engage in. Now Bonhoeffer himself engaged in. Um, but then there's that ultimate reality of, of Christ and this, this spiritual side that, that's also important. We've got to be uh, looking to those resources of, of scripture, listening to God's voice, um, engaging in that so that we can be even more effective here in the world. Um, and, and, you know, we can't go around ignoring one or the other, the penultimate or ultimate. And so I think it was helpful for me. I mean, I, I have thought about those two terms. You don't always hear the word penultimate, right? Mm -hmm. um, as, even, you know, whether it's a theological context or not. And so, um, so I think it, it has been helpful in some ways to kind of think about, you know, what, what am I doing here? What's my purpose? Here I am as a human being trying to follow God. Um, here I am in this world. So, so what am I doing and how, how do I interact with kind of God's kingdom is sort of here, but not in all its fullness. And, um, you know, the spiritual realm is still very real and it's sort of here with the, with the worldly realm. And, um, and, and it, I think it's helpful to kind of think through some of the things Bonhoeffer said about you can't have one without the other and, and both sort of find a place of reconciliation um, through Christ, who, again, divine and human, bringing the two together. That's great. Thank you. Um, all right. Well, we have one last question for you. This is the fun one. Um, so it's a little game of Desert Island. The idea is that you are trapped on a desert island. You can have one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer. So a primary and a secondary source. Um, which two books would you take and why? Okay. Well, I, I'm going to think of this question in terms of uh, readability or, or re-readability, right? I mean, I figure I'm on the desert island. I want to be able to read this, these books sort of over and over again. So I, yeah, I, I, I hesitate to say this. This may be a bit of a boring answer, but I think I would have to choose his ethics. <laughs> Maybe that seems like the obvious thing, but, um, but to be honest, Corey, you know, I, I've read those, those different ethics manuscripts that comprise what, what we know is sort of his ethics, which was left incomplete, uh, incomplete. Um, I've read those so many times over the years, uh, particularly when I was doing the PhD, but, but before that and after that as well. And I just think, you know, I'm, I'm challenged by them every time I've been able to read them over and over and still find a new little intriguing bit of it that I want to think about. I think because they were left unfinished, there's forever this sort of intriguing, uh, wow, how would Bonhoeffer have, have sort of put all this together finally or you know, what might this have implied or would he have taken this forward in one way or the other? And so I think there's a lot of imaginative work that one can do that's for me inspired by uh, his ethics. And so I think, yeah, I think on a desert island that, that could be quite useful as I only have my own sort of mind to occupy myself and my few books. So, so I go with the ethics um, mm -hmm. for the primary source. And then the, the other one, I don't know, this may be a, a, a sort of different approach to this question. I was thinking, Maybe I would want something with some visuals so I could, you know, remember what people look like and what uh, other places look like aside from the desert island. So um, there, there's this book that uh, you, might, you might know, it's just called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, A Life in Pictures. And it's uh, 2006 um, Fortress Press. It's a hardback book, 160 pages. And I've just always liked it. I often recommend it to people 
who just want an introduction of Bonhoeffer. Mm. It goes through chronologically. There, there's obviously some text in there as you kind of follow the, the basics of his life. Um, it's not deep, deep, deep analysis. Obviously, there's what there are wonderful biographies out there that give you lots more. But but I really like all the the documents, the pictures of Bonhoeffer family, documents, historical situations. There there's some pictures in here that are are quite a few that aren't the typical pictures you see often printed in, in other books of Bonhoeffer. And it's almost like a coffee table book in the sense that I I could just sort of flip it open and it's kind of fun. Okay, wow, nineteen. 27, 1939. Okay, well, let's look at a few of the pictures here again and mm-hmm. read the captions and even read some of the original document and, and look at uh, what Bonhoeffer was doing. So I think I would, I won't have a coffee table, but I will, I will bring my, my coffee table book nonetheless to the desert island. That's great. Well, that's all I have for you. I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to do this. I learned a ton from your book and it's, I mean, even in my own work, it's going to be an invaluable resource for me. So thanks. <laughs> Well, that's great, Corey. That, yeah, I, I had fun today. This is fun to talk with you. And uh, yes, best of luck too. I'm excited that you're uh, embarking on a, a study of Bonhoeffer. I think there's, it, it's such a, a rich corpus of, of material. There's going to be lots for you to, to explore and then find your way in. So, so best of luck with that. Thanks. Again, the book is Becoming Simple and Wise, Moral Discernment in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Vision of Christian Ethics by Josh Kaiser. Thanks again. We'll be great. Thanks soon. so much, Corey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app and it will help others find the show. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash Bonhoeffer We have quite a few supporter benefits available on there. Uh, so please check those out. And speaking of the Patreon, special thank you to the supporters of this show, Soren Jensen, Andrew Clark Howard, Hank Janelle, Arthur Houts, Greg Harbaugh, Chris Button, Chris Sunby, John Cromarty, Chris Baker, Diego Reeve, and of course, as always, a special thank you to you, the listener. I love doing these and I look forward to them each month. So thank you so much for listening.